Welcome to the Making Sense of Islam podcast, where you will hear a wide selection of reflections on Islam, lifestyle design, and mindfulness. Since I began this podcast a little over a year ago, it has grown and grown beyond my expectations, and I've received a lot of positive feedback, as well as constructive criticism, which I always welcome. Based on all of this, I spent the summer months reflecting on how I can take this to the next level. And I'm currently working to develop an entire e-learning platform for making sense of Islam. When the site is complete, you will find in addition to the podcast, videos, articles, and most importantly, courses I've put together and am currently putting together about topics I feel are super important for English-speaking Muslims. The launch date is near, so please follow Making Sense of Islam's social media accounts on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for details. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. My guest today is Khoram Zaman. Khoram is the CEO of Fifth Tribe, a leading digital agency serving the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area based out of the 1776 startup co-working space. In his professional capacity, he has provided digital marketing services to clients as diverse as the Department of Defense, Kaiser Permanente, Oxfam America, Ernst & Young, and the Hult Prize. His writing has been featured in Forbes, Entrepreneur.com, and Business to Community. In 2017, Khoram came in first place and won $5,000 for a data set on ISIS religious texts in the Kaggle September data set competition. And on a personal note, I actually have used that data set from Kaggle and found it to be extremely useful. You should check it out. In 2016, his work in data science drew recognition when his data set on pro-ISIS tweets became the best performing data set on Kaggle for the whole year. He gave a keynote address entitled Innovation Culture, Multiplying Impact Across Sectors at the Fall 2016 Business Analytics Forum at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. In 2015, his company was appointed to private sector committee along Goldman Sachs and IBM to the Global Community Engagement Resiliency Fund. In December 2014, Khurram and his co-worker won first place at the Hidaya Hackathon during the Global CVE Expo, where they developed and prototyped a crowdsourcing and social media platform to counter violence extremist messages. Khurram is the host of the Campfire Impact and Innovation live podcast on YouTube, and in his free time, Khurram serves as a mentor to startups through the Peace Tech Accelerator, the Halicon Incubator, and is also an entrepreneur in residence at Georgetown University. Khurram is certified in design thinking, agile scrum, and marketing strategy. He is a 10,000 Small Business Fellow, Goldman Sachs 2018, and Emerging Leaders Fellow, Small Business Administration 2016. Khurram graduated from the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, with a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science, 2005, and the Widener University School of Law with a Juris Doctorate in 2008. I also want to read just a shorter copy on the company Fifth Tribe and the reason that that's important is that as you will have heard in the new introduction to the podcast, I am updating my own platform, Making Sense of Islam, and actually Horam and his team at Fifth Tribe are the ones helping me uh, with that. So based out of the Startup Accelerator 1776, Fifth Tribe is a digital agency that serves businesses, government agencies, and nonprofits. Their mission is to positively impact the world through design, tech, and marketing. Since 2012, they have worked to fulfill their mission by helping over 50-plus clients from, the D- from D.C. to Doha build the brand, the tools, and the metrics needed to redefine how customers experience their organizations. Their service offerings include 
product innovation, product innovation, branding, web mobile application, and digital marketing. They are a diverse team comprised of designers, developers, and project managers that are all based in the Washington D.C. metropolitan area. And again, on, to end the introduction on a personal note, I have found uh, Fifth Tribe to be a wonderful team to work with, uh, and I highly recommend them for anyone uh, who has digital needs. Without further ado, please welcome my guest, Khuram Zaman. Khuram, welcome to the show. Assalamu alaikum, Tarek. How's it going? Alaikum assalam. How are you? Good. Alhamdulillah. Just uh, getting through the day. Good. Thank you for making the time. I know you're busy. Uh, you have a lot going on, which is actually maybe the launching point. So one of the things, there's so many things that I want to discuss with you. I don't know if we'll, we'll get it all in in one episode, but uh, without any necessary necessary like order of importance, I just wanted to start by asking you about Fifth Tribe. I remember when I was first introduced to Fifth Tribe, you had mentioned why you even called it Fifth Tribe. There was sort of a rhyme and reason behind that. So I, maybe we can just start with that. Explain to us what you're trying to do with this company, uh, what you've done and where you see it going. Yeah, sure. Great question. Uh, so so Fifth Tribe is a digital agency based here outside of uh, Washington, D.C. Um, and we do sort of three things. One is product development. Uh, two is we build interactive experiences on web, mobile, gaming, and VR. And the third thing that we do is digital marketing. Uh, we're pretty industry agnostic as we work in eight different sort of sectors, including uh, retail, restaurants, nonprofits, uh, government, um, you know, just sort of a whole spectrum uh, of different uh, sectors and, and brands that we've worked with. Uh, the company's uh, name is from a book called Tribal Leadership by Dave Logan. And he essentially looked at a couple of thousand different people at hundreds of different companies to see what he felt was sort of the criteria for success. And he felt that the most um, you know, important factor was company culture. And he defined what a culture was. And he laid out five levels of culture. A, a level one culture uh, was basically that uh, you know, there is no culture. A level two culture is it's a terrible culture. A level three culture is that, you know, the company's doing good, but um, it's really uh, partisan. And most of the people that are driving it are doing it for their personal success. And they're kind of cutting each other down and, um, you know, not really, you know, the company's doing okay, but it's, it could be doing better. Uh, stage four culture is the company's unified around a single mission, which is the success of its um, customers. And a stage five culture is that the company is unified around the same mission, which is the success of the customers and also having an impact on the world. And so we call ourselves Fifth Tribe uh, to remind ourselves that, you know, the goal is to have a rising tide lift all boats, which is creating win-win situations for everybody, not only for us as a company, not only for our customers, but for the general community and the world abroad. Um, and so that has been a guiding principle for us. It's kind of like our North Star. Is, is having sort of that impact focus. Um, and so a, an example of that is that we've got a project um, from the Vatican Accelerator to help them build a website. And it was a very kind of aggressive timeline. And we had a lot of other projects going on, but they were dealing with the very important subject, which is climate change. And so uh, the Pope um, Francis, he wrote uh, an encyclical about climate change. And the way the Vatican Accelerator works is that they basically give out a competition they have a fund, 
you get in, you get accepted into the fund. Um, you you stay in the Vatican, I think, for about six months, and you get uh, you know sort of this this fund to launch your startup that's funding climate change. So it's like one of those cool projects that's trying to kind of make the world a better place. But you know, as a company, it wasn't necessarily like a really um, sort of uh, you know you know it wasn't like a it wasn't like a cash cow. That's how I would kind of put it. You know. Um, but it was an important topic and we felt like, Hey, this is our way to kind of contribute to this important um, problem in the world. And I asked the team and I said, look, everybody has really crazy deadlines. Uh, we don't have to do this. Is everybody down to do it? I asked my design team, my development team, my requirements team, and everybody was like, wow, this is an awesome project, which is an awesome client. We need to do this. And everybody just worked, you know, basically extra hours to get the product done. And uh, my business partner, Adam Motiwala flew out to the Vatican he presented the product to a bishop there. He didn't get to meet the Pope, but you know, it was still a pretty, it was a pretty cool experience. Um, so that's an example of us as a company. What we try to do is, uh, you know, make sure that it's not just about us, it's not just about our customers. It's about, uh, you know, kind of trying to have an impact on the world in a broader sort of aspect. So I think people might not realize the significance of what you just said, I mean, having we we hear a lot about companies trying to be ethical, uh, companies trying to do the right thing, companies trying to do what's good for the world, etc. I have found a lot of that to be an extension of their marketing, and they actually don't mean it, or nor are they actually making the world a better place. But what you've just mentioned that that that's sort of hardwired into your culture. Maybe you could maybe we could tease out a little bit, you know, the significance of, you know, when you're, when you're in a, f- a for-profit uh, commercial venture, you really have no incentive uh, to do quote unquote, the right thing for the world. You're, you know, you have a fiduciary responsibility to uh, your shareholders, to yourself, to your employees, maximize profits, etc. So because of that, it, one would, one could almost argue that you're hardwired not to think to be, to, you're hardwired to be selfish, so what is it like running a business where you actually are trying to think about, you know, profit, but also impact, social impact, you know, doing the right thing? You know, you took on this project, it was stressful, wasn't necessarily a cash cow, but you, you guys did it because you felt it was the right thing. Give us a little bit more of those details. Like, what are those conversations like, you know, as a business uh, owner? What is that an operator? What is that like for you? Yeah, so the, because like our focus has always been, um, you know, creating a strong culture, um, you know, the, the best way to do that is by hiring right and not hiring, you know, sort of people that don't fit the culture. And so you might have people that are incredibly talented designers, developers or marketers, um, but they're all about themselves and they're not team players. Um, and or you hire people that you know, maybe they're not the best developer or designer but they, you know, they put in a lot of work and they're hardworking and they're team players and they go the extra mile and they have a lot more impact, um, you know, within the company. Um, and you know, they, they can produce it at a, an incredible rate. So when we hire people, um, you know, what we try to do is you know, typically we cast a very wide net. If you want the best candidate, we usually, for any position that we have, we usually have at least a couple of hundred people apply for them. Um, and so like, I'll, I'll give you an example. Like I was hiring for an office assistant, um, a few years ago and I had 300 applicants. <laughs> so I had like, uh, we tried, you know, we did some ads on LinkedIn, we did Craigslist, we did Facebook. There was like a bunch of different channels and I didn't expect a, such a high volume of, of people applying for the position. And, you know, um, 
and you know, I actually one role that I had was when I graduated from from law school it was 2008. Was during the financial recession. It was really hard to find a job, and like I would send out emails, like nobody would get back to me. And so then I made it a rule, like I'm going to respond to every single one of these people, and even wow. if uh, even if uh, I just give them a chance, you know. And so I out of those like 300 people, I had like a simple task because it's an office assistant position, and I would just say, hey. Thanks for applying for this position. Look at your resume. Uh, can you just do me one task, which is just send me an email uh, and with some, you know, basically uh, and set up a calendar time. And it was because it's an office assistant position. I wanted to see could they follow instructions. Can they schedule a calendar meeting? You know, because that's what I wanted them to do. I wanted them to manage my my sort of schedule. Um, that was one of the tasks they would have. And about half the people didn't do it. And so um, that was it. Took it from 300 applicants to like 150. And then we scheduled meetings and stuff. And I interviewed about 75 people over the course of three weeks. Um, and it was a very intense, like every, I would have interviews like every 30 minutes. And I, my goal was to respond to everybody. I ended up hiring about four people from that push. Um, only one of them was hired as an executive assistant, but others I hired for, I would hire, I, I would just meet somebody. I'm like, wow, this person is super talented. Uh, she's not gonna, you know, maybe she's not the best fit for the executive assistant, but she could be a UX designer. Oh, this person, he can help out with marketing. This person can help out. Oh, this person knows how to do, uh, you know, a little bit of coding on the side. And so it, it exposes to a lot of different people. So when you cast a really wide net, you get sort of a lot more options in terms of, of who you can hire. And that's when we were able to, um, you know, we were able to hire people that we felt were really passionate about the job and also about the company culture. And during those interviews, we'd mention what our company is about and what our values are. We have like a, a orientation, I'm uh, sorry, uh, we have this like presentation that we, we, we talk about our values in detail, what our principles are. We encourage, you know, learning, we encourage people taking risks, we encourage failure, we encourage owning up to mistakes, like all of that gets discussed from the get go. And then, you know, when people get hired there, it's really clear what we're about. Um, and then we also do agile scrum as a company. And so as a result, it's a very team oriented approach and every day everybody checks in and they have to say what they're working on. And if I have anything to work on, they say, hey, I don't have anything to work on. Somebody give me work. And then, you know, it, it's a very transparent organization. And that's how you create this culture that is very, um, it's very, uh, you know, transparent. It's agile. And it's really focusing on just delivering value. Um, and sometimes during the interview process, we'll have people like there's one person that we was a really exceptional designer. And, you know, she, they're great. She was, you know, we when we hire people, we also like put, upfront what the position and salary is, is. We don't hide it. We don't negotiate it. We just say, look, this is what we can do, right? And then we let people know, like, this is the range. And, you know, there might be a little bit of a plus minus, like, 5K, um, you know, on the salary position. But in general, like, we, we, you know, we don't like to trick people and waste their time. And, you know, and we just let them know this is what the salary is and, and are you okay with it? And, you know, one lady, she was a really talented designer and she was just like, you know, this is a really cool company. I like it but I really want to make a lot of money. And this is what I, and she just wanted to get like something that was like 30, $40,000 than what we were offering. And we were like, cool, that's fine. You know, we respected that. And then a few months later, like, I think it was like four months later, I saw her on LinkedIn, that company, she, she ended up joining a big consulting firm and four months later she quit. And, you know, the money was great, but the culture was terrible and she hated it. And then, you know, she just didn't, you know, she ended up reaching out to us and we ended up hiring for our position or like, Oh, sorry. Like, you know, we already hired somebody. Um, but that's the kind of stuff that happens is that sometimes people, when they focus too much on money, um, yeah, it's, it's, it, it solves some problems in your life, but it's a trade-off. And so, uh, you know, there's more to life than just making money and there's other human needs. And so if you create a culture that 
addresses those needs. Um, it doesn't create this schism within us. Like, oh, I have, to, I have my work life. I have my family life. I have my community life. I have my, you know, my activism. Like all of those human needs. Like you should create a, 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 an environment where humans can thrive, and they can fulfill their potential. And so, um, you know, to say that our potential is limited to a very narrow set of technical skills, it kind of diminishes human value. Um, so that's kind of the general overview of how we have these conversations, our hiring process, some of the cultural habits that we do as a company. Um, like I mentioned, we do Agile Scrum and we do retros and we acknowledge our work. Um, we also acknowledge when we're not doing well and how we can improve. Uh, we do hackathons on the regular. Um, so we participate in hackathons. We do our own internal hackathons. We, we, um, uh, we organize hackathons for other organizations. And what that does is what we typically use our hackathons for is to try to push ourselves to learn something that we've never learned, like we didn't know before. So it's a new tech stack, um, or it's like try to build something that's we never really, you know, we just want to mess around with. Um, so my example for me is that I am not a coder by profession, um, but I, I taught myself a little Python. And during one of our company hackathons, it was like an eight hour hackathon. We come in, we get donuts for lunch, we get pizza. It's like a very, not very, wise dietary choices, but you know, it's fun. And then what we do is you have eight hours and you got to do two things by the end of the day, you got to do a pitch and a prototype. And so the pitch is, this is what my hackathon idea was. And the prototype is you demo it. It's usually just like five minute sort of kind of thing. So one year I was learning Python and I wrote a script to track ISIS supporters on Twitter. And at the time, um, you know, I was sort of seeing, I got, for, you know, I, 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 I sort of have seen sort of this whole like, jihadist culture uh, within our community, um, which is in a lot, large part is in denial that this is a problem. And maybe it's not like the biggest problem, but it's, it is there. And so I would see these guys on Twitter that are like just pushing out pro-ISIS content like constantly. And they're getting like, no one's really doing anything about it. And, you know, I'm like, okay, this is kind of crazy. So I started creating a, a, a script to download their tweets so I could analyze it and see like, what are the topics they're using? Can you refute them? I tried debating a few of them. They would just block me, you know. So that happened, um, and basically there was an attack in Paris, uh, the the Paris shootings that happened, and then Twitter got a lot of public pressure, and they started taking these accounts down. And um, they realized that at that time they were sending about 200,000 tweets per day, you know, uh, which is pretty crazy, and um, there was a lot of interest in that. So I took that data set, and it wasn't even that large. It was maybe like 30,000 tweets. And I put it in a platform called Kaggle, which is the largest data science community in the world. Google bought it, I think, last year. And it became like one of the best performing data sets on that platform. And so that's an example of culture, which is like we did a hackathon, didn't know anything about the specific you know, technical skill set, but we were able to kind of innovate um, and have some impact on the world. And the impact that we had was that we got the attention of a lot of, you know, people in social media companies like Facebook uh, and Google uh, and a lot of NGOs and government officials. And we were able to kind of help shape this conversation of like, what is it that we should be doing? And we're still involved in some of that stuff. It's not so much ISIS related now. Now it's more like white supremacy. Um, so we're like working with a few different institutions to kind of see like, what are the ways that you can kind of combat that stuff? So that's a kind of another example. I know it's a sort of a long-winded answer, but that's an example of how you could your company culture can have impact on the world, like you know, in a very short amount of time. 
No, no, that's that's great. And I, and on that Kaggle set, I mean, I want to come back to that. I've actually used it and um, <laughs> I downloaded it and, and and went through it, and I have my own sort of observations. We'll get we'll get to that. But there's there's two things that you said that I want to I want to come back to. This idea when you got when you got this influx of uh, applications, and then you immediately asked them to do something, and then that sort of brought it down in half. And that's a trick that I've learned the last couple of years is that when somebody comes and asks me for something and I want to be helpful and I want to you know, help people and I want to be there for people, but what I've gotten in the habit of doing is making it a habit to ask them to do something. I'll be like, okay, uh, here's my number, send me a text or here's my email address, send me an email of what you want to discuss and then you know, let's talk on the phone. And I found that when I do that, like you, I get about a 50% response rate. And mm-hmm. uh, I think that's very telling. It, you know, it's just human nature, I guess, is that sometimes, for me, it's more like immediate. I'll be in a public gathering or I'll be at the mosque or walking outside of the mosque. So somebody will grab me, but I really, I have to go. And they say, I, I need to ask you a question. And I, and, I, and I know that it sort of might be either long-winded or I got to go get the kids from school or pick them up or something like that. So mm-hmm. I'll say, okay, you know, here's, <clears throat> here's my card or here's my email. Here's my phone number. Just send me a text and we'll talk. And about half half won't. So I, I, it makes me wonder, I guess, well, how much did you want the job then? Or if you can't, you know, if you can't follow up on that task or how much did you really need my help if you... I feel bad, uh, but, but when I... And I was taught this by a mentor of mine. I realized that it's i think it's it's only appropriate if somebody wants something from from you and you just make them go through one little hoop uh, that will tell you whether they're serious or not so that's uh, i found it in sort of my personal life to be to be helpful mm-hmm. and and yo man you went to law school i did not i that's new to me <laughs> yeah yeah i mean so obviously i'm daisy so i had two choices growing up uh, from my parents which is doctor lawyer you know, um, so I went to University of Maryland, Baltimore County for undergrad. I worked as a teacher at an Islamic school for a year. And then I went to law school where, uh, incidentally, Joe Biden was one of my professors, was the professor at the school. Oh, wow. And I, I worked at the law library uh, on the weekends. And, um, you know, basically he would come on, he had a class on Saturday and I met him a few times actually. And he was like totally different in real life than that he was like on media. Like he's so serious and very like, you know, he's a very regal personality, but like you see all these gaps online and like, on the media, you're like, oh man, but in person, he's very, you know, he's very, um, you know, just very composed. So this um, was in Delaware? Yeah. And then the funny part was that he had a class on Saturday and my friends and I were just like, man, he's a, you know, he's a congressman. Um, we should take his class. Like, what if he runs for president? And we were like, nah, he's not going to run for president. And then that same year, because uh, it was a class on Saturday, like you're, you know, you don't want to take a class on Saturday. It was like I think it was early. I think it was like 9 a.m. on a Saturday. We're like, no, we're not gonna wake up, like go to that. That's like ridiculous. Like unless you got, you know, you just want to hang out all day, you know. And so we're like, forget that. So um, what happened with? The, oh, go, go. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So then the funny part was then you know we all graduated in, in 2008 and he became vice president. And then, like, now he's running for president. And so, like, my siblings are always like, you should have taken that class with Joe Biden. And I was like, oh, man, that's what happens. You just don't know how things are going to end up. So what happened with your law career? I mean, when you graduated law school? I'm, I'm assuming yeah, it's three so years. I, I just, um, yeah, so I didn't go down that path. I mean, it was one of those things which was, again, it was kind of like I needed to kind of process off my checklist to sort of get uh, my parents happy. 
but my passion was always helping people. And when I graduated, like I said, it was 2008, the so financial crisis had, was basically in full swing and it was really hard to get a job. And so I had one of my uh, teachers, uh, you know, just, um, you know, uh, there's like a, you know, sheikh I was talking to and I was just asking him, like, what should I do? And he, you know, his advice was, you know, engage in khidmah, he's like, serve people. And he says that if you serve people, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will open up a way for you. And I thought that was like a really weird answer at the time. I was like, that sounds really, you know, he wasn't like, you know, like. You're like, I need the khidmah. I need somebody to yeah, serve me. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I thought it was like, you know, here's a resume, like send it over. I'll help you get a job. But, you know, it was interesting. Um, basically, that was his advice. And so I did a lot of uh, charitable projects. Um, and so I would just help institutions do like online fundraising and marketing. Um, and I raised like, uh, a couple of hundred thousand dollars in one year. And it got a lot of people's attention um, at that point. Um, and so, you know, from there, I started getting offers uh, to do marketing contracts on the side. And so I would think I was working at a real estate investment firm at the time. And they were like, I was looking at the numbers and I was like, I put it in a spreadsheet and I was like, hey, if I had these numbers up, I can actually make more money doing this than doing what I'm currently doing. And that's kind of what set me off on the trajectory of being an entrepreneur. Um, and so then I had another company and it was, uh, it worked out for a while. And then this company, Fifth Tribe, which was uh, started by uh, my friend from college, Asif Khan, um, you know, he was getting a contract with the mortgage company that wanted a mobile app. So Fifth Tribe at the time was only doing mobile apps, but that client wanted digital marketing. So he reached out to me and was like, hey, can you help us close this deal? And you can come in as a subcontractor or whatever. And it ended up working out really well. And we ended up, you know, the whole team, we ended up driving. And so then I ended up, basically merging the two companies. And then that was how Fifth Tribe became a digital agency. Um, but it was a cool experience so far. But the thing is the khidmah that I engaged in, like my, that Sheikh was, was right. Like all, all the, and I had no intention of like trying to get any, I didn't know what I was good at at that time. You know, I was like, Oh, am I a lawyer? Am I a teacher? I wanted to go study overseas. You know, So there's all this whole like dynamic of like, what, what should you do with your life, you know? Yeah. And then by, by serving people, uh, you know, there was, uh, you know, there was some success in, in those engagements and that actually re made me realize kind of what I was sort of good at, um, you know, and then, you know, it one you know, led to doors opening. So that was one of those things where, you know, Oh, mashallah. Like, so that's, that's, uh, that's a new piece of information for me. Yeah. I, I did not now that, that, that makes you know, that cast you in, in clear light for me now. <laughs> so law school, uh, would you say it was an asset or a liability? I mean, has it helped you? Uh, yeah, I mean, so for me personally, like, I think the challenge was, um, you know, I, I always had these sort of like intellectual tendencies. Um, and I just, I was a, our, our family was, we're a bunch of readers. So my dad, he was always reading books, but as a pharmacist and my sister and I, we would always like during the summer, go to the library and just read like constantly. And even when I was in law school, even though I was reading, like, I think I was reading a couple hundred pages a day on top of my reading for law school, I was reading about 20, 30 books extra on various topics, like economics, politics, colonialism, history, you know, just, it, it, just constantly reading books. Um, but for me, law school was great because I had so, it was a very rigorous intellectual environment and I was just able to read vociferously. You know, and so um, it, it makes you very sharp, you know. Um, and so I think I was reading a study from, it was like Harvard Business um, Review, and they were talking about how, you know, I think some, there's, they have like a breakdown of CEOs. And like one of the things, like one of the subjects or uh, professions that CEOs usually come from is engineering. And then two was, I think, like finance. And then three was law. 
And so I think that like law school was great. Um, it gave me a lot of uh, intellectual skills. It gave you a way of analyzing problems and breaking them down and looking at cases. You know, like those are skills that as a business leader is very helpful because nobody, like no one business is the same as the other. Some things that are constant and there's some things that are variables. Um, so I found that very helpful. I found that setting FIP was actually really helpful as well. <laughs> Interestingly enough. Well, no, um, I actually, that, that's something that I, sh I share with you uh, as well. And the, yeah. the, the reason I was asking you about law school is that studying fiqh and usul al-fiqh, which is, you know, a, a legal yeah. system, I have found to be tremendously beneficial. Yeah. So like, uh, I just, I remember like I was in uh, a meeting one time with my staff and I was like, let's break this problem down into integrals versus conditions. And it's like, just basically <laughs> like, it's like, you know, like we'll do one one Yeah. I, yeah, was like, yeah. I was like using it as an exam and they were like, that's really good. Like, where'd you come up with that? And I was like, I didn't come up with it. It's just like, you know, like it was just, I, I thought it was a little bit sacrilegious to take something that's like, you know, uh, no, I, I think it's it for uh... a secular purpose, but it was really, I thought it was really just the way that they analyzed like the analysis of how you break a, a problem down and understand the interrelationships between things. That's very, very helpful. So that's why I felt about law school and business was that, you know, it's a really serious commitment. I think it was a great experience. It was a good, rough, bad experience, if I could put it that way. Like, it's really hard, but it was awesome to go through it. And I found it very challenging. And I love, and I really, I love the challenge of it. And it was something that, you know, all the studies, all the intellectual um, activities I engaged in, I found them useful uh, for running a business. Even, for example, like I did political science in undergrad. I remember one of the most influential papers on me was the Federalist Papers. And I remember like reading Hamilton and Madison uh, arguing that, oh, you know, we need to have, you know, you can't really stop factions. You can only stop the harmful effects of factions. Like you can't prevent factions from rising, but you can prevent the harmful effects. And that was very influential on how I was able to shape the company leadership and the structures and how we make decisions, you know, uh, and, and basically reduce factionalism as much as possible, which is kind of what tribal leadership is about. It's like the goal is to prevent factions from arising. And so those two kind of works uh, were very influential on in how we, how we shaped a company. And then it allows people when there's no conflict at the top, it allows people to actually focus and fulfill their potential. So law school, I thought was, was great. Um, it was really hard. You know, I'm glad I, I went through it. Uh, I would recommend people like, to, you know, like to, you know, people ask me, should I go to law school? And I was like, well, yeah, I think everybody should go to law school. <laughs> you know, uh, I think it's a great subject. It's like how I feel about the liberal arts. You know, I think it's like, it's, it's one of those things where it's like the, the, it's not really clear how you'll get to where you need to go, but you'll find over as time progresses, like a really good education, a really rigorous education. It, it's like, it's like halal interest. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, it just gives you dividends over a huge amount of time and it just gets better and better. Um, you know, as you progress. So for me, like I try to do that all the time. Like when I, when I drive, uh, I commute to work. So I have about a 30 minute drive and a 30 minute, um, Metro ride on 30 minute drive. I listen to podcasts and the 30 minute Metro ride. I read books cause I don't have internet access. So usually I'll, I'll have an Amazon Kindle and in that one hour, you know, basically of commuting and then an hour back, you know, you can basically, you're just learning all, all the time and you solve all these problems just by listening to other people talk or read their books, you know? So I think that learning is a lifelong experience and being in an academically rigorous environment is very important, especially for Muslims. Like I think it's really important, you know, uh, because there's so much stuff about Islam and Muslims in the media, but also in our communities, that's just like half baked, you know? And so being intellectually rigorous, you should be able to develop the skills to kind of take a bad idea, break it apart, you know, and, and figure out a healthy way to respond to it. 
Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, I don't think it's sacrilegious at all. I found uh, specifically usul al-fiqh to be, I mean, basically that's how I think. So I can't always articulate it that way because I don't think everyone around me understands what that is, like in your example. But <laughs> it's definitely, yeah. I think one of the challenges in running your own business, um, you know, if you're crazy enough to do it like we are, is that you you can get overwhelmed very, very quickly. And yeah. I think being able to to like in the usuli slash fiqh you know language to be able to look at what the integrals are versus what all the extra stuff is uh what you know to 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 quiet out the noise so you you just see what the you know the core issue that you're dealing with i think that that skill is uh you know immeasurable and and something that i i even in my personal life my family life dealing with the kids my wife you know just sort of family dynamics and family politics with extended family i found it to be a a, a tool that that i use all the time i mean it's essentially how i think it's essentially <clears throat> it's my framework of mind and and when i'm able to put things in that framework i can most of the time kind of find my way out of out of the problem so i think that that's great now i, I want to i'm going to come back to the Islam stuff. I mean, obviously, the, the name of the podcast is "Making Sense of Islam," but, but I'm gonna we're gonna get to that in a second. But one of the things that we have in common is our, you know, let's say obsession with reading. And I mean, you know, I'm like fanatical about about reading and about books. And without without going down the rabbit's hole, I, maybe you could share with us, you know, how often you read, uh, the type of things you like to read, and I don't know if you have like top like five recommendations across mm -hmm. you know, any subject matter. I think that would be helpful. I mean, it'd be helpful for me yeah. too, also, to know what's what you're interested in. Yeah. So as I mentioned, like we, um, I come from a family of readers, um, and so my father, you know, he he ran his own business for a while, uh, pharmacy in New York, and then he moved down to Maryland, and he ended up working uh, for for Safeway Pharmacy, and basically, you know, he would not be able to go to sleep at night unless he was he read first, and so he would he would just stay up reading, and then me and my sister picked up that habit too. We were just all constantly reading. And I remember like just having so many library finds all the time because I like read a book <laughs> and I had just so many books in our house. Like it's hard to kind of keep track of everything. And then uh, for my wife and kids now, it's the same way. Like everyone reads. And so it's, you know, when we come home and it's just nice, you come home and everybody else is reading, like it helps you read, you get even more focused. So we all have tea and coffee, um, you know, so like the kids drink, uh, you know, they drink, they drink shy and they have mint and then like, they have their own special like caffeine free teas too that they drink if it's at night on the weekends you read. Uh, so as I mentioned, like typically I'll read at least for about 30 minutes a day. That doesn't include like articles and stuff, but it's just like a habit. Like I force myself to read like all the time. That doesn't include reading on the weekends. Um, and, uh, and what I find is that when the kids go to the library, I'll go with them and I'll just go to the, you know, basically the business section, I'll read books. So for my Amazon Kindle, the one rule that I have is I, I only read um, business books on it. I don't read anything else. Like I don't have any fiction. I don't have like when I buy books about the Dean, like I hate having them on electronic format for some reason. Like I like having a physical copy. Okay. So I have a library in the basement and basically like, you know, in general, like all my Islamic books are all like, you know, I, I, I'll read them, you know, basically uh, in a specific order. Um, you know, they're all there. It's a physical copy. Like I can't do the, the digital thing. I don't like reading PDFs of Islamic stuff. It just feels weird to me. So, um, those are the kinds of books that I read. Um, I have like a blog post about topics of books. Um, 
you know, from entrepreneurship, I think there's a few that are kind of really important. Um, one book that I think it depends on where you are in your entrepreneurial phase. Like if you're about getting started, you know, I think that really understanding customer discovery is very important. Like really understanding who your customer is. That's phase one. Business model, um, canvas, business model generation books. Those are really good for people that are looking like I have an idea for a business. I don't know if I should do it. How do I know this is a good idea? And, you know, that's a good book to get started with. Um, obviously there's lean startup and design thinking books. Um, once you get to the company being off the ground, um, the second area is to really focus on your financial system. So there's a book called Warren Buffett on financial statements, which talks about how does Warren Buffett um, evaluate investing in companies based on their financial statements. How do you read the financial statements? So that book is like really, really good because it really tells you like not only like what financial statements you have, but like how do you evaluate the success of a company uh, to make it investor worthy. That book is really good. Um, Harvard has a book called Financial Basics, which explains the three financial statements, which is your profit loss statement, you have your balance sheet, and you have your cash flow statement. That book is super Super simple. You can finish it, uh, I think, like in a, in a day or two. The third book is Financial Shenanigans, which tells you how companies cook their books, basically. And it's really like just, it has a lot of famous companies in there. Like, I think Fitbit was in there. There's this thing with Under Armour, which is a Maryland company. It's under investigation for the SEC for messing around with their books. And so, you know, like you kind of like the, the, the heart of a company in that sense, um, you know, it's, it's the beating of it is money coming in and out. So you're getting revenue and then you have your accounts receivables and then you have your accounts payable, like you're paying people out and your job is to make sure that everything is flowing, um, you know, as efficiently, as effectively as possible. You know, your job as a CEO, like, it's not like to go out and be a celebrity. It's to, it's to make sure people get paid on time so they can support their families. You know what I mean? So you have this like huge responsibility. And so those books like teach you, like, how do you run a company like very responsibly? Yeah, um, I, I know the yeah. blog post that you you yeah. mentioned. I've read it, and um, I mean, I'll definitely have a link to it. But the the reason I asked, I'm, what you're saying is great, but I just wanted to jump in about this sort of CEO super stardom, you know, culture. I think yeah. that that messes up entrepreneurship for a lot of people and 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 getting involved in business because I think there's like an assumption now that if you start a business, that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah, I mean, like the, for me, the model is, and as this might sound very cliche, it's the profits less time right, is that, you know, he was a merchant. Um, and if you look at the Salaf, uh, you have Imam Muhammad al-Shiban, I think he was asked, like, you know, why didn't you write a book on Zuhud? And he's like, I wrote a book on commerce, right? So that's like, to me, like, I always thought that was like, that was interesting. I always thought that was um, kind of interesting. So I asked my teachers, like, that's kind of weird. Like, why not write a book about, you know, asceticism? Like, why commerce? And it's like, well, if you do all the things, you know, in commerce, you know, and you follow them and that's how you attain an aesthetic state. And it's kind of interesting. And so the, the mark of that, like, if you think of the essence of the prophetic character, like, what is it? It's that he was truthful and trustworthy, right? Yeah. It's not just that he said certain things. He also did certain things and he had this immense trust, but not just as a prophet, you know, for all of, you know, creation, right. To, to, to convey the message uh, correctly, uh, and the whole purpose of this existence is to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? And he's the final messenger. So he has this immense responsibility. Uh, but even in his daily engagements with people as a merchant, people trusted him, even his enemies. Even though they were boycotting him and when he did the hijra, he was sending his uh, companions to protect other people's property. I mean, that's the level of, you know, responsibility he took over his trust. And so that's how 
as a CEO, that's what it's about. It's not, it's not about, you know, fame and fortune. It's about providing value to people. It's about taking people as like, you know, you're almost like a shepherd and you're responsible for this flock and you're, you have to fulfill your obligations to people, even if they don't articulate it, like you have this responsibility. Um, and so that's what I, I mean, when you read these books about, you know, how people run successful companies, integrity is very important. Right. And so when I think of integrity, like for me, the, 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 the first thought that comes to mind is the prophet him. but that was his quintessential character that he was truthful and he was trustworthy. And I think it's a very important kind of topic right now in the Muslim community, because we have a lot of recent kind of, you know, scandals and stuff like that, where people look like they're the heirs of the prophet, but they don't act like it, you know? Yeah. Um, and well, so I think that's where that disconnect comes in. And I think that, you know, it's, being an entrepreneur, it's like the same thing. If you're going in it for the same reason that, you know, it's, it's cool. It's just, you know, I run a startup, I can get a series A, I mean, I'm getting news reports. Like that's, that's not what it's like running, running a company. There's a lot of like 99% of it is very mundane. It's very boring. It's not, you know what I mean? It's not like, yeah, Peter, I just read this quote yesterday by Peter Drucker and he says that a successful company is a boring company. There's no drama. It's just, it runs efficiently. Yeah. And that, that's all there is to it. It's not supposed to be chaotic. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I, w- I would say for a CEO, like your basic responsibility is, you, you know, there's things that are, um, that, are, that are just being done on a regular basis. And your job is to make sure, like, the things that are working are staying working. And then there's all these new problems that come up and your job is to solve them or find people to solve them. And then you get out of the way and you let them do their job but you just make sure that it's, it's turned into a system and it's scaling. So, it's not very, um, you know, there's nothing kind of like romantic about that, you know? Um, but it's, uh, but it's, it's incredibly rewarding if, if you do it right. So just to round out the, the book, uh, part of the conversation, go moving over to the basement where the, the physical books are, what, how, you know, what kind of, Dean books do you like or do you gravitate to? Do you have a favorite? Do you have like a book yeah. that you keep going back to? Um, so I gravitate towards books about the Prophet so and um, okay. one of my favorite books is The Drink uh, for the People of Purity. And um, uh, by uh, Abdulaziz Suraka? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The translation is from him. Um, and there's a section of that book that is just incredible. Um, so the thing with being an entrepreneur is like it's it's got the ups and downs. And so you'll have like a really amazing thing happen and you'll have something really crazy happen. And it'll be like the same day or within the same time frame. And you're like, okay, sometimes, how sometimes within this? the same hour. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes within the same hour. So Elon Musk said it, said it best. He's like, you know, uh, being an entrepreneur, the highs are high, the lows are lows, and it's a roller coaster in between. And that's really how it is in a lot of ways. So you're dealing with a lot of uncertainty and volatility, which, you know, to be honest, it's there in the world. So if you're an employee, you're just shielded from all that volatility, you know, but if you're an entrepreneur, you're just seeing reality for what it is, which is like this huge, there's just a lot of chaos in the world, you know? Yeah, yeah. Employees might not see it, but it's there just because they're not experiencing it, you know? Um, and so in that book, uh, so, you know, when, when you're dealing with these highs, what our religion teaches us is that you're thankful to God, right? Like when things are going good, you express gratitude and through obedience, right? Um, and when things aren't going so good, then you turn and you like, you repent. And, you know, what I find helpful is when I'm really, really stressed out, I try to increase my salawat on the Prophet and like it were like it's just incredible. Like you know, that's as a Muslim entrepreneur, that's like my number one advice was that increase your blessings on the Prophet which you should be doing anyway, whether you're an entrepreneur or not. 
But in the book, The Drink for the People of Purity, um, the author had this, this is one paragraph that just like blew me away. And he talks about how like, if you're undergoing financial stress, what you should do is you should make a budget. And then every um, dollar that you need in your budget, you should send salawat and the prophets have sent them for that. So like itemize, create like an itemized budget. And then you like send salawat. It was just like really interesting. And it was just like a, you know, I just like, a, I, I don't know, maybe that's like just me, but I just find that kind of stuff where, you know, people take the religion and sometimes it's so lofty and ideal. It doesn't seem practicable. Uh, but when you read these other works, which is like, hey, like you're in dunya, it's a, it's a grind, you know, and it's weighing you down and people can give you a very practical, you know, counsel that you just literally, they, they know the pain that you're experiencing, you know, how do you, how do you deal with it? And they give you a solution. So those are the kind of books that I like to read, um, you know, basically around, you know, it doesn't have to be like gigantic books, but, you know, stuff that's really very concise and, and very meaningful. So that's one book um, that I like to read. I know just in general, um, you know, any, anything about the Prophet SSM, I like to read, read those kinds of works. Uh, it, it really gets me. There. And then the book Stories of the Oliyas is also very helpful because like I said, is that when you read some, some things in Islam, like we have sort of like this inferiority complex living in the modern world where, you know, we live in an era where there's like a hegemonic order. And so the way that we respond to the hegemonic order is by creating this idealized version of history and this idealized, like, you know, everything was great under this empire or under this ruler and nothing was wrong, but that's not life. You know, if you read the stories of the Oliya, like they're engaging with very difficult, very difficult situations. Like Imam al-Ghazali, you know, he's got the crusades. You have other Oliya, they're dealing with the Mongols and they're, they're still doing Dawah, they're still teaching, they're still engaging in spiritual purification. You know, they didn't, didn't have this like imbalanced approach that, you know, unfortunately seems to be sort of the hallmark of this age, you know. They're reading the Oliya, um, their biographies and their experiences and what they were dealing with, it grounds you because we have it really good, to be honest. Like, it seems like Islam is always under attack in the media. It seems like there's always all this oppression happening. But if you compare what people went through historically, like we're living in far better, especially here in America, like we have a pretty high standard of living. Um, and yeah, people are making fun of us on, you know, maybe the, in the political sphere or, or something else. I just, you know, if you look at Muslim social media, it just feels like everything is a crisis and it's not. Like what happened historically throughout time is like those are very severe crises and reading how people dealt with them was, is incredible, you know. No, I, I agree. I think um, I think the challenges that they had before were were greater, uh, more dramatic. You know, when you think of the the Mongol invasion, the sack of Baghdad, the, the, you know, assassination of Khalifas, I mean, serious serious stuff. Now it's sort of there are challenges. You know, there are huge uh, displacements, mass displacements of Muslim populations, but I I do agree that the the challenges in the past were were immense. Now on the uh, stories of the Awliya, do you have a particular translation book author that you you like slash recommend? Um, you know what I try to do is I just I think about it in terms of regions, um, and then I'll look through different books. So for example, like I'll say, okay, you know what, I'm gonna read about the Awliya of North Africa. And then I'll just like, okay, let me go on Wikipedia and see like, who are some of those people? Okay, great. So in Egypt, these are all the people that are there. Here's the ones from Tunisia, from Algeria. And then I'll go through my library and say, okay, who do I have that, that talks about that? There's a, there's books about Olia from, you know, from Yemen, you know, or I'll say, okay, cool. Like Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jani had all these students. He sent them all over the world. Where did they go, right? The people that are kind of lesser known, you know, how did Islam come to India? 
so that's kind of how I think about it. It's just sort of like, you know, just it's not necessarily like, oh, here's the book. It's more like what specific topic or region or historical epic uh, and, and sort of see how people were, were, were dealing with, with things. And you know, the, the, if, you, if you think of the way that we talk about history in, the, in our community, it's like uh, we had the Prophet Sallam and we had the Salaf and then it was the Ottoman Empire, like, or, or like, you know, you have a, the Omeyyads and the Abbasids and the Ottoman Empire. It's kind of like, there's a lot of stuff that's happening all over the world, even in the topic of colonialism, you know, and how, like, the, these stories of the Muslims in Spain and, you know, how they were kind of pushed out of it and where they ended up in North Africa and how some of them, they ended up getting treated as outcasts because they didn't speak Arabic. They had their own sort of, like, mixture of language, uh, but they built a city and they ended up engaging, you know, basically um, as corsairs and fought in the Mediterranean. And so that's like a very interesting story. You know, you don't really get clickless about that kind of stuff. In East Africa, you have people that were pushing and fighting against the Portuguese, you know. Um, and if you look at all these stories, there's all this stuff happening. And there's almost inevitably, there's some sort of wali that's behind a lot of that activity, you know. And that's the kind of stuff that people are overlooking. And so you read that kind of, uh, those kind of texts, you know. But... You know, there's a bunch of different books. I mean, Reliance of the Traveler, if you want to get a quick overview of them, at the end of the translation by Sheikh Nu, he has an entire uh, uh, sort of like uh, appendix of, of, of ulama and olia, and that's probably pretty comprehensive. It's not really in-depth. It's maybe like a paragraph or two about each person, but it kind of like gets you uh, the names of those people, you know? So shifting gears a little bit, it's clear that... Um you know your faith your 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 uh, understanding of islam your study of islam is a huge part of how you think you know as as it is for me and i, I wanted just to talk to you a little bit about how that impacts running a business starting a business uh, that journey i mean it's it's very clear that we would both agree that you have to have principles uh, a moral compass uh, to do group work whether it's for profit or not for profit and for us, that's obviously going to be informed by our, our religious ethics and, you know, what we find in the Qur'an, the Sunnah, etc. So I, if you could just speak a little bit about how you use Islam in that regard. I don't think a lot of people think of Islam that way. I think a lot of us are just compartmentalized. I'm a Muslim, means I go to Jummah or I go to this mosque or I send my kids here for Sunday school or I pray Eid here. But I don't think a lot of us are thinking of Qur'an and Sunnah in solving our day-to-day business problems or even starting yeah. a business for that matter. Yeah. I mean, so I think that the way that you can think of it is there's like a, there's an external as an internal, there's an exterior as an interior. Um, and I think what we tend to focus on is just the outward manifestations of things like, Oh, can I wear a hijab or a kufi? Can I grow a beard? Can I pray at work? And those are all important things. Um, for us, like, even though we are kind of like, you know, we're, you know, all the owners of the company are Muslim but we don't like mandate our religion on people, which, you know, like that creates a lot of legal issues. Right. So we don't obviously don't do that. But what we try to do is when we run the business, we make decisions, we're guided by these principles. And we have these discussions too. Like, um, so we're really like, we're not a Muslim company, but like, obviously like we, we try to follow, um, as much Sharia compliance as possible, you know? So, if we have to engage in lending or something or getting, we try to avoid interest as much as we can, you know? Um, so we don't impose our, our fic on people, but like we, 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 we kind of go out of the way to kind of make sure that 
we're Sharia compliant, we'll we'll consult with scholars and say like, like, hey, this is a business thing. Like, does this make sense? Are we allowed to do this? And sometimes they'll say you can do this. Sometimes you can't do that. So having a board of um, if you're an entrepreneur and you're Muslim, and you know that's one thing I would definitely advise is that getting legal advice in and of itself is is, is challenging, uh, but getting Sharia compliant advice is also challenging, but you should have it um, and have advisors that you can trust that you can ask questions to. Um, and then people that have like kind of run a company that are scholars is actually really helpful too. So I have like some people that I talk to that, that work, they have day jobs, like they're programmers or they, they've done other stuff. And so they know like, you know, it's, they, they can, they can kind of get it um, when you ask them a question. I think the second thing, like I said, is that, you know, being connected to the prophetic character is very important is that if, you know, if you're going and being this awesome Muslim guy, you know, in the masjid and you're doing all these things, but you're just like really hard to work with and not trustworthy. I mean, you're doing it wrong. That's, you know, that's not really what this Dean is about. Um, it's about having the interior and the exterior match as much as you can. So your, our values are important. Um, we're sensitive about, you know, helping disenfranchised communities. Um, and so we, we go out of our way that when we hire, we make sure that we're hiring for, from communities that, um, that are as diverse as possible. Um, and we make it in all of our hiring job applications, we make that very clear, like, Hey, we're looking for underrepresented communities. And we try to go out to colleges, um, that are underrepresented as well and talent pools and stuff. And so one of the hires we made this year was through a program called pivot at Georgetown, or I'm an entrepreneur resident at Georgetown. And one of the professors there, she started a program to help people that are formerly incarcerated, get internships basically and job placements. Um, and so we helped them out. It was one of those things where like, again, it's, this seems like a really good impact, um, you know, project. Uh, when I met a few of the fellows, a bunch of them are Muslim. Um, and so, you know, I try to give them as much attention as possible, but, you know, we launched that project. Uh, we helped them launch their website. And then, uh, one of the fellows we were training with, he was really talented. He'd never finished college and now he's working with us as a web developer and he's actually building out a project for ARP as we speak, you know? So that's the kind of, uh, focus that we have is <clears throat> helping out the communities um, and different, like going out of our way, not just to help sort of the people that are, are already like, you know, have all the resources, going to people that don't necessarily have that, helping them with projects, helping them with internships, helping them with hiring. It's sort of like, what would the profit system do? And like, you know, that's how you kind of, you know, you make your decisions as a business is like with the profit system, help people that are inmates, um, former inmates, you know, get jobs. I think, the answer would probably be yes, right? And so, like, that's kind of how we think about it. So, one is like, Islam is a system, and so you want to make sure that when you're running your company, you're following these guidelines, right? Um, and the finances, like, doing it to the T, the dotting your eyes and crossing your T's, you know, treating the wealth not as your own, but like this is what belongs to this entire company. It belongs to the employees. It belongs to the people that we pay for our accounts payables. So we have contractors, we have lawyers, accountants, like we're responsible to all these people. And so we have to make sure we fulfill the obligation and seeing it as an amana. And then, uh, and then, you know, also the spiritual purification. So, you know, basically you can, you can take every asset to the business and like make it a part of your Dean in a way, you know? And so it's not this conflict between Dean versus Dunya, or it's like, oh, I have to like work versus whatever, you know? So I mean, I like the, I like the way I like the way you phrased you phrased that because yeah, a lot of times, uh, my experience with people that might have a 
I don't know what the right word is, but like a kind of secular attitude towards Islam. You know, like the auntie uncle like type of situation. Yeah, they it's it's oxymoronic that uh, Dean would lead to some kind of uh, flourishing dunya. And for me, my understanding and study of Islam has been very, very liberating. Not just intellectually and emotionally, but has been very liberating for me to try to start something new, to try to be a producer, not a consumer. And like you, I mean, I find a lot of awesome solutions in in my own spiritual practice. And like you, I find that my work, I mean, you're spending so many hours, so either it's going to be for you or against you you know, in this world and in the next world. So I find that that's very, it can be very therapeutic. Yeah. Uh, well, I think people find that odd for some reason. But for me, it's like very, you know, intuitive. I mean, of course, w- w- that's what Islam is supposed to do for you. Yeah, and I think that the challenge is that, um, the hard thing is that when we think of entrepreneurship and business and finance, I mean, that's money. And we think of money as materialism and worldliness. And really, it comes down to intentions, right? So actions are by intentions. And so you kind of have to have like, you know, you have the, I think, I think it was Imam Ahmed who said, you have the dinar in your hand, not in your heart. Right. So you have, you know, when it comes to business, the money is not the end game. At the end of the day, the end game is always Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And when it comes to the money, you realize that, you know, your risk is from him. So when things are going well, you realize like, okay, this is a, you know, you express gratitude. And when things aren't going well, then you say, okay, what did I do? Like, you know, maybe I need to engage in, you know, and you make an effort of, of not taking it like, it doesn't destroy you as a person, you know. Uh, some people, when they experience worldly challenges, like it really causes their iman to to get really flustered. And what should happen is when you're running a business is that your iman should just, you know, when you go through a difficult time, like you should, whether it's doing good or bad, like you should always be in a state where you're turning to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You know, so that's how, it, that's kind of, you know, the thing that, that's, that's there's no, there's no like conflict there if the intention is, is correct. Yeah, I mean, I, I wish, I wish maybe we had, or maybe we need to have like some kind of group, I think, for you know Muslim entrepreneurs, or maybe there are groups I just don't know about to sort mm-hmm. of help one another. Because I found many, like I said, many solutions, uh, like you focusing on the person and the character of the Prophet Ali Sallallahu I mean, that's that's really my way as well, and and that makes it very real, uh, because you know here is somebody who struggled for so long, and. Uh, created a state, uh, created a culture, uh, reinvigorated a language. Um, you know, from a worldly point of view, if you just measured it all from a worldly point of view, that that's success on, on, you know, almost too many fronts. So why would I not look at that model of success uh, for my own little project? I mean, there's got to be kernels of truth for what I'm trying to do. As you said, like managing people, managing money the end game, working with the disenfranchised, doing what's right, even if it's not in vogue, etc. All of those things we tie into our sort of religious beliefs. So I think, you know, I wish when I was starting out, I had that kind of support rather than having to stumble yeah, into it. Yeah, I feel the same way. I think that the um, when you're when you're running a, a, a business, like, um, you know, in the community, there isn't that much um, of a network. And what I, what I realized was that I had a few mentors at some Fortune 500 companies, and that was very helpful. And I realized like, I could never pay them back. Like, you know, they're all very successful people. And um, so what you can do is pay it forward. And I do a lot of mentorship. Um, so at Georgetown, I'm an entrepreneur in residence. I'm also a mentor at the Halcyon Incubator and also at Legacy International. Um, and the reason why I picked Legacy International 
is because a lot of the businesses are in the Middle East and North Africa. Um, so I went to Tunisia in September for this trip and I met a lot of the entrepreneurs there and it was, a, it was like an amazing trip. And I like, you know, their economy over there is just like, it's ready to take off. Like, you know, they're there. It's where the Arab Springs started. The tech talent is incredible. There's, there's just, they're so educated, you know, but they're kind of like cut off from the global economy. And so like, they need a lot of help over there. Um, so, you know, like if you can mentor people here in the U S but also throughout the Muslim world, I mean, you can have probably like a very, very incredible impact. And it was a great trip for me too, because I got to visit some of the mausoleums over there. And so there was, like, I went to city of the Sayyid. I got to visit uh, one of the uh, mausoleums of the Sahabi who was there. So for me, it was like, I was, it was like great. I honestly, yeah, I remember seeing I really, some of those pictures. It looked like, a, a I loved it. Trip. I was like, wow, this is so great. And I just, I honestly was like, if, uh, you know, if I would, I could move to, I could just move to Tunisia. I love that. It was a beautiful country, you know? Um, but again, like, so I try to mentor startups, um, and like what I have like an informal network of, of Muslim entrepreneurs. And I'll say, Hey, if anybody wants to hang out, like, you know, we can just do like a zoom call, like kind of how we're doing now. And, and I, I, I have them go through the business model canvas and, you know, the way that we, we do it at Georgetown is that, um, we have these things called chalk talks and you just like, it's usually once a week, and anybody can come up and then they just give you like an update. Um, and the mentor's job is not to tell you what to do. Their job is just to listen and ask questions. And we can't say we like an idea or we don't like an idea. You know, our job is just to be like emotionally neutral and just say, okay, cool. Like, did you try this, try that? And you know, and sometimes what entrepreneurs need is we need a sounding board or we just need to talk and somebody listens. And then we, it, we just think through a problem and it, we come to the conclusion through the discourse you know, other times they need an introduction and, you know, oh, I'm looking, I mean, I'm really stuck on this one problem. I'm like, oh, I know somebody who can help you with that. So that's the kind of stuff that we do. And so what I try to do with, um, you know, uh, you know, usually like once a month or so, I'll meet like a Muslim entrepreneur or something either in person or usually on the phone, we'll talk things through and I'll say, how's your business going? Like what's going on? And that's kind of how I, I pay for it. And I'd love to do like a dinner, maybe like once a month or something where we get people together and we can all just sort of you know, chat and everybody can talk about how their business and it has to be kind of at the same level. So people that are in an idea phase versus people that are at a certain threshold in terms of revenue versus people that are trying to scale versus large organizations that are looking to innovate. You know, there's a whole like ecosystem where it feeds into each other, you know. Well let, let me know, man, because I, yeah. I I I'd love to share all of my scars, mistakes, <laughs> flops, uh misses uh, it's just because I don't want other people to go through it. I mean, I've uh, yeah, exactly yeah. Seen, a, seen a lot. I'm sure you've seen a lot as well. And and sometimes, I mean, I was in a business meeting, not not a Muslim gathering, but I was in a business meeting a couple of years ago, something similar to what you're saying. And one of the things that struck me is how everybody has gone through the same mistakes I've gone through. Mm -hmm. And and the one one of the main things I came out was okay. I'm not. I didn't necessarily do anything wrong. It's just. You know, those are common mistakes, common pitfalls. It happens. So let's make sure that, you know, you don't, you know, you don't do them again. Um, and I became more aggressive about looking at, you know, what are the common trends and mistakes and principles so I don't, I don't fall. Um, so if, you, if you're going to get something like that going, please let me know. I'd, lo I'd love to be a part sure. of it. So sure. one area I want to turn to next, sort of a little bit different, which is something that we both have in common is, you know, we are part of the English-speaking Muslim world, more specifically, we're, we're both American Muslims. And we have noticed, I would say, in the last five, uh, seven years, certain trends um, 
in the community, we've been vocal. I think you've been even more vocal than I have regarding certain trends. I've been caught up in some of those uh, and been criticized heavily by some people. And I wanted just to spend you know, the last part of this interview with you uh, to talk about some of those things because I think they're they're important. Now, one of the reasons, you know, somebody might say, well, why are you asking Khurram about these things? And he's a you know, <laughs> business guy, an yeah. entrepreneur. And I think that one of the one of the reasons I think your opinion is important is that you have an un, you have an unfiltered opinion. First of all, you're you're learned, so it's not it's you're not like an ignorant person commenting about something you shouldn't be commenting about, which unfortunately happens a lot. So you you do have the background, but you it's unfiltered because you don't really have any skin in the game. You're not worried about your popularity online, you know, whether your page is certified or not, whether people are going to come, you know, to your talk or your lecture or your khutbah or your class. So I appreciate your comments because I think that it's it's genuine. You believe in these comments, you believe in these perspectives. And I think that that's really important because like you said, just because somebody is in the character of the inheritance of the Prophet doesn't mean that they've actually inherited from the Prophet, you know, peace be upon him, unfortunately. So what are some of the top like two, three trends that you see are happening uh, that, that concern you with our community? I mean, that's a, that's a really heavy question. Uh, so I would start at sort of the macro level, right? Which is that the community that we are part of is part of a broader community of communities, right? And so what is humanity experiencing of which Muslims are kind of a subset of that, that group. And so one at what we see is in the material sense, one is there's a lot of financial and economic instability and that this whole economic system is not working out for a lot of people around the world. And so you can call the income inequality, you can call it sort of the, the breaking up of the financial order, but something is not working for a lot of people. And so a lot of their efforts, like if you think of the average Muslim like, or person, like what do, they, what do they do? They go to school, they get educated, they get a job, they get married, they start a family. That's where they spend most of their time. And so if you're a religious leader, you're not acknowledging the struggles in all those areas. I mean, that is, you're not necessarily fulfilling your job as a, as a religious leader. So education, like it's really hard to get an education now, at least in America, right? Like you need to go and get a loan to do it. And that is not just a crisis Muslims are experiencing, but like it's a major, major challenge now, student loans, right? The marriage crisis, so because people have all this debt and they're buying houses later and now you have social media, people are tending to get married later. They're having kids later. Uh, so this is all stuff that like these stresses that in a worldly sense that are happening on people um, and that we're a part of, right? Like think of it as like, you know, we're in a, we're in an ocean and these gigantic waves are crashing down and you're saying, well, we're going to ignore these waves and just try to go through it. Like that's not, you're just going to drown the whole boat, the whole boat, you know, it's not going to work out. So that's one thing that's happening. The, the, these financial pressures are causing the second thing, which is that societies around the world are getting polarized. Um, and an American can see it very clearly, but it's not just an American thing. You can see it uh, happening in Europe. You can see it happening in India and China. And so uh, the polarization is uh, where you just, it's not like one group is right or wrong. It's just that there's two poles that are being established and they're pulling these societies away from the center. The third thing is that um, a lot of those societies that are getting polarized have really negative views of Muslims. So you look at places like Europe, even the ones that are very liberal 
and secular have very negative opinions about Muslims and wanting them to integrate, and they view them as an existential threat. Same thing, you're seeing that right happening right now in India, you're seeing it happen in China, you're seeing it in Myanmar, you know. The world has more refugees now at any time since since World War II. And I think something like 90% of the refugees are from are, are from Muslim countries. You know, Afghanistan, you have Somalia, you've got Syria, Iraq, you know. Um, and so this, this is what the, the, at the, this is the backdrop for what's happening, um, you know, in the world. That in America, what we have is a real strong crisis of leadership where, you know, we had sort of charismatic leaders kind of come up create a strong Muslim identity. And then, you know, within the past 10 years, they all kind of fell apart in various scandals that show that, uh, the, you know, there's a lack of integrity that to, to, to put it. Um, and so that's what I think is sort of like defining what the problems are and then going into what the solutions are. That's sort of the secondary kind of, uh, you know, challenge. Um, and I think American Muslims, we have sort of this, a lot of the discourse, at least on social media, I don't want to say it's toxic, you know, because it's kind of like a cliche, but I just don't think it's, it's really getting at the nature of what we're dealing with in reality, you know. And there's two ways to see reality. You know, one reality is how Ibn Arabi saw the reality, which is that everything indicates towards the oneness of God, right? So all these things that are happening that perturb us, they don't need to perturb us, Right everything is indicating towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and whatever happens is, you know, at the end of the day, there's, we have a high, we have a good opinion of God. That's how we see it. You know, we're, we're religiously optimistic. Our concern is not what's going to happen in the world. It's really like, what are, what are we responsible for on the day of judgment? And like, you know, am I going to be held accountable for what's happening in another part of the world? Maybe, maybe not. But the most important thing is the intention is that, you know, the prophet instructed us that if you see it wrong, you try to, fix it with your hand, if not by your tongue, if not, at least despise it in your heart. So we're in a situation where there's a lot of volatility. There's a lot of powerlessness, right? And so we can pretend like we have power and talk of certain game on social media and, you know, pretend like we're neo-Ottomans or whatever. <laughs> but, you know, at the end of the day, maybe our, my personal opinion is the approach is that in any situation, you turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? Which is what the grandfather of the Prophet did when Mecca was being invaded and there was an army that no one had ever seen before, an army of elephants. And he basically said, like, I'm going to protect my flock and Allah subhanahu wa can protect his house. And I'm not saying that, like, literally that we should, you know, basically consign ourselves to fate. But the point was that he knew what he could do, where his power was. And he knew the power of Allah subhanahu wa And he had, you know, like, that's the situation that we're in. And no matter what happens to a Muslim anywhere in the world, like, we should have complete conviction in the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that Allah subhanahu wa will amend this issue either in this life or the next. But we're responsible with it. If we have power to do something, we do it. Most of us don't have power. So what can we do? We can speak out against it. We can make dua. Um, we can make up for the hajjid and make dua for people. Like there's all these actions that we can take uh, to, to assist people. Um, but the situation of humanity is going to be very turbulent, not just now, but it's going to get worse and worse. As this polarization spreads, as this hegemonic order breaks down, you're going to have more people, autocrats, that are going to say, hey, there's nobody to tell me what to do. I can go ahead and beat up these minorities. And so look at in our election over here where people are looking at it and saying, hey, this guy is not going to do anything in the White House, so I can go ahead and beat up these minorities. And if it was a different president, they probably would at least be a little bit more subtle in what they're doing to 
you know, Muslims in China, Muslims in India and Palestine and so on and so forth. So that's the situation that we're going to be dealing with is that it's going to get worse. We need to have a reality check. By reality, we mean not just, you know, just what's happening in the world, but what's happening in, you know, sort of a sort of a metaphysical level and always never be disconnected from the ultimate nature of reality. So, and so, so that when I see this crisis of leadership, what that's a manifestation of is that dis- it's something is disconnected with Allah and his messenger. So they may be talking a certain type of, you know, rhetoric that makes us feel good, that makes us feel, you know, like we get like an Iman boost or whatever, but it's not real. It's not substantive. And it's kind of like fast food, like it tastes great, but it's horrible for your soul. You know, that's kind of how it's being developed. And so what we have to do is we have to have really deep reflection uh, and again, I think it goes back to the Prophet and not just him, but the people that are connected to him through this chain. And those people that are all over the world, they're not just in, you know, just the Middle East, they're in South Asia, Southeast Asia, Central Asia, Europe, Africa, um, here in America, that had the same experiences, um, you know, in terms of their understanding the reality of of this uh, of this universe. And it didn't it didn't perturb them. It didn't change them. So that's what I think is sort of happening at the macro level and the micro level. And it's not really looking good from a worldly perspective. Like, you know, it's not going to be, um, you know, it's going to be very difficult in the years to come. And we need leadership that can understand that and figure out how to guide their communities through it. So one of the, the challenges in what you're saying, I think, is that trying to I mean, I like the fast food example. I mean, trying to say, okay, let's let's stop for a minute and then really reflect on uh, this issue of power. You know, do we have power? No. Uh, is engaging in this type of activity going to help help us or not? Most likely not. And rather, let's then focus on the type of activities that will help. The problem with that is is it's boring. No one wants to do that. <laughs> Right, you can't. You, you, I mean, I just I, you know what I think. I think of like Ramadan, for example, and how um, it, it is forced upon us. Right, it's been written upon us. Kutiba alaykum. It's it's been it's been it's incumbent upon us that we literally unplug from all of our normal routines. But yet, uh, every Ramadan, I'm surprised about how active people are online still fighting uh, still uh, quibbling uh, you know criticizing exposing and i kind of feel like well we've missed the whole spirit of, of ramadan and then that just carries mm-hmm. on on throughout the year <clears throat> coupled coupled with that is this crisis that we're facing as you say in leadership where where people have uh, you know fallen stars and uh, these exposés of abuse, whether it be sexual abuse or you know secret marriages or whatever the case may be. I feel that what one of the one of the things that's going to happen to not just our generation but our children's generation and beyond is this lack of trust that there can be leadership, that there can be religious leadership. So then people start putting their trust in other modes. So a lot of people in our community I see are putting their hopes and their desires and their wishes in the political process. And they are trying to jump into that as a mechanism to solve our problems. Some people will end up leaving Islam altogether, saying that this this hasn't helped. Some people will leave altogether, say, I can't live here anymore. And that's sort of what concerns me. What, what, What do you think are some of the qualities 
of a leader, uh, not just like one person, but as sort of as an abstract concept that we need? Like, what is it that that we've we've missed in the last 20, 30 years? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I think there's 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 two levels of this. So first of all, there's going to be conflict in our community, right? We can see conflict as one of two types. It's like cholesterol. There's healthy cholesterol. There's unhealthy cholesterol, right? Um, and conflict is the same way. There's healthy conflict and unhealthy conflict. Unhealthy conflict is when we avoid an issue that we know we will have to confront at some point because we want to save face, because we don't want to look bad in front of you know, the mainstream media because there's such negative portrayals of Muslims. And so we ignore issues like, you know, like domestic violence, or we ignore an issue like Muslims going overseas to join ISIS, or we ignore an issue like a mosque's finances not being run properly, or somebody engaging in illicit relations, using religion to justify it. You know, all those things that we don't want to talk about in the public, you know, um, the end result is exactly what you said, which is if you ask me, like, what is the major crisis that we should be concerned about? The geopolitical stuff, the you know the, the preservation of the rights of Muslim minorities, that's definitely high up there. But what's really the, the the biggest, what you could say, existential threat is apostasy, which is not that Muslims are losing their lives, but that people stop being Muslim altogether. And if the thing that will turn people off is that when people are being oppressed, the tendency is that when you are being oppressed by somebody, you tend to do the thing that they, the opposite of what they're trying to get you to do. If you are a, re- a religious state and you're imposing religion, what's going to happen? People will end up becoming more religious. We saw that in Turkey, right? And then you go to another country that tries to impose religion. What happens? The opposite tends to happen is that people tend to become less religious. And there was like a study I was reading about some places in the Middle East where like they have very large atheist populations, right? Um, but this is the concern that you have is that when we see religious leaders, we ha- it's a trade-off, right? You know, we can choose to protect, you know, the identity of some people and, you know, dealing with public shaming or whatever, or the, the consequence of that, if we don't deal with the issue, is that we end up having a large group of people down the line who may apostate because they don't trust religious leadership. I think it was Imam al-Ghazali, and I don't know if, I think he was paraphrasing Imam Ali uh, who said that, you know, it's no surprise that people are kind of turned off from religion when they see its people, right? Like, you know, if you see charlatans engaging in religious antics, you're like, wow, like, is this religion? Is this what it's about? If this person who I held in such high esteem, you know, basically was engaging in all these problems, like, you know, problematic behaviors, you know, now maybe religion itself is a sham, right? And so that's the consequence of not taking these issues seriously. So yeah, you might have to like, uh, you know, uh, you know, publicly acknowledge a problem in a community, uh, and that might put an individual or an institution uh, in a tough situation. Or you could choose between a bunch of people potentially leaving the deed. And so what's just the greater harm there, right? Uh, I mean, for me, it's the latter, you know. Um, and so that's what I think is is not really clear is, you know, Islam is always, it's, it's in a position right now where a lot of the dominant powers are, are critical of it, right? Either it's a security threat or it's, um, you know, it needs to be integrated to some sort of value system right, to some sort of nationalistic value system. Um, and so because of that pressure, people don't want to, you know, people want to close the, you know, circle the wagons whenever a problem happens in the community. But the truth of the matter is that you have to deal with the internal and the external issues concurrently, right? Uh, and so if you see somebody like Ali, uh, you know, he dealt with, 
really serious external challenges. He dealt with very serious internal challenges and he still taught the deen. Like he was teaching Arabic uh, to his students in Iraq, you know, and then uh, during the, the civil war, you know, people would submit fit questions to him from the opposing side and he would give fatwa, you know? So he didn't change like who he was or his, um, you know, his, his priorities uh, just because of the crises that he was sort of facing with. So that's number one is that one is that we have to accept that there are some conflicts we need to engage in. And there's some conflicts that we don't need to engage in. The geopolitical macro level stuff, the average working Muslim who's like a doctor or lawyer or a student or like, you know, they're not going to be able to shape what's happening in terms of policy in other corner of the world. So just be real, like bring the ego down. We're not all revolutionaries. It's not going to change the world. Okay. But there is a lot of stuff that we can do in terms of our own spiritual development. There's things that we can do in the local communities and that should just be prioritized and realizing what you're good at, you know, just do what's in front of you. And if Allah subhanahu opens another door, then you take it. Right. So that's the general level of, you know, the stuff that's happening in the community. Like what, what can we do about it? We need to do certain things we should be doing certain things we should not be doing. In terms of religious leadership, I mean, that's something that probably have to ask some other people more qualified uh, to do that. But I think, again, it's the same concept, is that integrity is very important. Um, and, you know, it's really, really hard to gauge that. Uh, one of my teachers, what he said was that a, a Muslim should have intelligence and integrity. He said that if you have intelligence but no integrity, you take advantage of other people. And if you have integrity but no intelligence, then you get taken advantage of. So you need to have both intelligence and integrity, right? And I think that really struck me because he was like the first person I ever met in my life that talked about integrity and like a chutzpah, you know, what I mean? like, you know, and, and so I was just like, wow, like, why don't people talk about integrity? That's, if you think about the prophet system, like, that's like a huge portion of the character that he had, right? That is not just, he spoke really well and people clapped at his speeches, right? Uh, it was more that, you know, he has something about his character uh, was immense and people saw him or they spoke to him or they just experienced him and it was transformative. And that's why I find that stories of the Oliya is really helpful because, you know, like in India, for example, like you, you go to these mausoleums and even right now they're very like, there's just a lot of people who visit them and you realize like a lot of people became Muslim uh, through them while they were alive. Right. So this person came to India. They're not from India didn't speak the language, but you had millions of people become Muslim at their hands. And so you wonder, like, what was it about their character? What was what was it about them that inspired all these millions of people uh, to enter into Islam? And then you realize that they are just a reflection of the people before them and the people before them. And so you get to the Salaf, until so you get to the Prophet Sallallahu right? And that's the thing is that, uh, I don't know if that like, kind of really answers your question, but like, if you want to see what real impact looks like, you have to look at the people that have had the impact before us and being connected to them. And so when you when you have a standard for a leader, especially a scholar, and this is a person who claims to be an heir of the Prophet, you have to understand who is the Prophet. And he's the standard that we compare all of our leaders to, right? Um, and if people don't meet that standard, you know, we don't have to bully them or shame them, but they shouldn't be in power. They should be removed from office. There's procedures that you have. You know, and corporations do this all the time. I think McDonald's, the CEO of McDonald's resigned a few weeks ago. He was having an illegal relationship with a subordinate, you know, and then that was it. They, there's nothing, you know, necessarily 
it was a consensual relationship, uh, but it was considered inappropriate. So he had to resign as a result of that, you know? And that's yeah. how a, a secular institution deals with these kinds of conflicts. And so that's what we need to see in the Muslim community is that, you know, we're human beings. We're not masum. Only prophets are, are free from sin. And so the, our leaders are going to make mistakes and not just in matters of worship, but maybe some of them will make mistakes in theology or, or spirituality or law, uh, which is, it's, it's to be human to do that. But it's because they make no mistakes. It's not mean we don't hold, hold them accountable. And so there's a fear for some reason in holding uh, for institutions to hold their leaders accountable. And when you don't have that proper, um, you know, uh, you know, vehicle to create accountability, then it goes into the public realm, which is the worst place to deal with any of this stuff because you can get these mobs form, these cliques form, and then, you know, one people take one side and people take another side. So the goal was, let's go forward with Fitna, but what they ended up doing was actually giving the fuel to the fire of Fitna, which is if they were able to deal with it, you know, behind closed doors and remove a person and fire them, or if there's an investigation, you remove them from a position of authority while the investigation's happening. You know, if somebody did find, do something wrong, you make sure that people that they're wronged have some sort of recourse to justice. Instead, what happens is we kind of like, you know, just sort of, you know, sort of throw it under the carpet and try to hide it. And that's when you get all these crazy reactions that you're seeing. And so there's that level of immaturity that we you know we have a very immature way of dealing with these problems and we need to grow and start dealing with them in a, in a more mature fashion. And how we evaluate leadership is, is, is really the prophetic character and integrity. And so even if something might be like halal, you know, it might not, it might have been a breach of trust and leaders have a fiduciary obligation. And so laying out what are these fiduciary obligations. So part of the fiduciary obligation is finances. Part of it might be not engaging in illicit relationships. Um, some of it might be, uh, you know, not being abusive in terms of your verbal, uh, you know, interactions with people. And those are the, all the, you know, all, all institutions that are secular have all these procedures that sort of highlight it, you know? Yeah, I mean, people, I, I agree it's, it's, it's a big topic. I, I don't think there's one way yeah. of looking at it or one set of right answers, but I, I do, there, there's a couple of, of patterns that, you know, in your response that I wanted to highlight. First of all, I think you're being very generous. I, I'm I'm much more I'm much more, um, unfortunately, pessimistic, because because I actually know certain instances and, and things that have happened. I actually know the back some of the backstory, and when I when I couple the backstory w- with what I see publicly, I just think people are just flat out not being honest. And yeah. and when you say integrity, and you keep coming back to integrity, I can't. Emphasize. I don't think we can emphasize that enough. I mean, the reason the Prophet ﷺ was successful, uh, of course, I mean, Allah aided him, is because he was a sadiqul amin. You know, he was upright yeah. and trustworthy, and even his enemies trusted him, and even they knew that, that he wouldn't lie and he wouldn't he wouldn't uh, deceive them. And because a lot of people have built a certain type of public personality, there's now inherent dunya in that. So you can't sever that. So when I want to make a public statement, I can't have somebody criticize my public statement because it's going to like mess up my street cred. Yeah. So I've I know of instances where people have been blocked, their comments have been blocked, they have been, you know, iced out of the online conversation. I I even have a friend, somebody, and I you know my point is not to to point people out. That's not my job here. But in one instance, my friend told me somebody reached out to them and said, "Look, we can only be friends in the real world. We we really can't be friends online." So when I hear stuff like that, I'm like, okay, you just, you know, I have no respect, you know, there's no scholarly or academic respect if you if that's how you're going to be. I mean, you're just, you know, you're just like people that are, um, 
uh, creating false products and putting them out there and trying to cheat the system, like you said, cook your books, etc. The other thing, the other pattern uh, that I want to highlight is you keep saying, one of my teachers said this, one of my teachers said that. And I think that, that we underestimate the, the role that having a mentor slash teacher uh, can can have in 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 this in in the business world. I, I mean, I'll always call somebody if I if I'm stuck. I'm, I'll always mm-hmm. call somebody if I need help. Uh, can you help me out with this? What do you think about this? Even if it's just you know consulting with my lawyer, like is this okay or 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 what 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 are your you know advice on this that and the other thing? When it comes to the dean, I think it's even more important. So. Uh, you, like you said, we're not infallible, but it's nice to be able to pick up the phone and call somebody and be like, I'm thinking about doing this. I'm thinking about doing that. This such and such happened. What do you think? What are your thoughts, etc.? And because, alhamdulillah, we're part of that system, it goes both ways. If I step out of line, somebody's going to come and correct me and be like, that was a mistake. Mm-hmm. And I have to take it because I'm connected to that person. You know, I, my chain of transmission, my ijaza, my my whole... My, my whole uh, raison d'etre for, for, for doing and saying what I'm doing and saying is connected to that person, to that institution. So therefore, if I step out of lines, they can correct it. And I think, you know, that's sort of one of the problems is that a lot of our problems in leadership is because we don't have that system. But at the same time, it's that very system that's being attacked. Yeah, that's, a, that's the, you know, that's actually a very good point, which I think that... Um, you know, I think it's Sheikh Abdul Kumrad who said it in one of his lectures where he was, you know, people are criticizing, you know, Islam is not really relevant to the modern world and it can't deal with all of these civilizational challenges. And, you know, his argument was, well, we produce like 13 different civilizations, maybe more than that. You know, so it's in different continents for the majority of history, you know, of modern history, whatever. So, you know, his, the argument that like, oh, these old things that didn't work, um, you know, they're not relevant anymore, like scholarship and transmission um you know the, the thing i think it's a really like i think you said it like it's intellectually dishonest right and i think the reason why it's intellectually dishonest is you know we have a tradition that we believe that you know allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created mankind for the sole purpose of worshiping him and to correct uh our guidance he said prophets and he said the final messenger to all of the remaining nation. So each prophet was sent to a specific nation, except the final messenger is a universal messenger for all people in all times and all places thereafter, right? So that is what we believe about the Prophet Sallallahu All right. And that premise is very important because it leads to a conclusion that if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prioritized this message, but then he didn't prioritize the transmission thereafter. And it's kind of like it's having a bad opinion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You sure, know yeah, sure. You know what I mean? So it's like, oh yeah, uh, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the Prophet, he sent the Quran. But you know, all these scholars, they're just wrong. You know what I mean? They're just like, you know, like uh every the whole system is incorrect. And it's kind of like, okay, so there's something in terms of your aqidah, there's something not uh not fully uh fleshed out. It's a contradictory position. Um and so the, the notion that we can have a tradition that was really, it's considered, you know, the, the sole purpose of this existence is to worship God. And once people start worshiping him, this universe will cease to exist, right? That's what we believe about the nature of the universe. And so he sent prophets, uh, he sent the final messenger for all people in all times and all places. But basically, they only got it right for the first few generations. And after that, it went off the rails. Like that's, 
not having a good it's not intellectually coherent it's of course and it's inconsistent science. with what we believe because we're, we're we're the only community in which we yeah. believe in consensus and consensus is not only you know prophetically guaranteed but it's also something that carries from generation to generation so when everybody gets together and you know in the past and they their opinion on such and such topic is this that and you know their commentary is this that and the other thing then that becomes binding upon us so we're also like it's like a form of idiocy for us to just ignore all of that so it's not just yeah. quran and sunnah but it's also the consensus understanding of certain issues of the quran and sunnah become part of our religion. So why do I why do I ignore them now? If it worked for, you know, 1500 years, why isn't it going to work now? Yeah, and I think it's a very Protestant way of thinking, which is the dominant sort of geopolitical system, which is that, oh, we have the printed press now, I can read a book, and I can Google search stuff. And, you know, um, now obviously the thing is, so we're talking about individual scholars or uh, religious leaders a lot of the scandals that we're having in the community are not necessarily ulama, by the way. These are people that are, you may say, students of knowledge or they're preachers, but not necessarily like somebody who fit that model. So when people see these scandals, like, oh, this is why the scholars are all whack, you know, that's a bit of a uh, the improper conclusion to derive from that. Um, the teachers that I'm talking about, most of them don't have any social media. They're not giving speeches on YouTube, they don't have a subscription plan. You know what I mean? They um, and so like they just. I remember I would go to one dars and it would be me and the sheikh and everybody else would bail. The dar- and the sheikh would be like, "Hey, uh, nobody's. It's only going to be you and me. Do you just want to have the dars?" And I say, "Yeah, let's do it." And you know, he wasn't. Uh, and he didn't want to inconvenience me. He, he was kind of like embarrassed, like nobody's coming here. Uh, and so like you know, I just studied with this one person for a year, and it was incredible. Like. You know, being uh, underemployed was really, really a benefit at that time. You know, just being able to, I you know what I want to do with my life. I was like, I, I wouldn't phrase it like that with your parents, by the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, it, was, it was incredible. And I, I think one of those, you know, the hadith about taking advantage of five before five, you know, if you're young and you don't have, you know, really take advantage of your free time. You know, there's a time, right? Like when you're in college and right out of college, before you get married and have kids, you have, you have a lot of time. And so, like, using that time, you know, like, once you get your professional stuff going and your family going, your time kind of dissipates. Um, it's a lot harder to find it. And so, like, there's times of your life where you can go, you can learn a lot in a very short amount of time, um, you know. So that's what I would just say is that, you know, one is that uh, that we need to figure out a way to give, uh, you know, build stronger institutions here uh, in America, create a little bit more accountability with religious leaders, Um and, you know, a lot of the organizations here, they're not really run like institutions. They're run like, you know, a good old boys club, you know. And so, like, sure. hey, I'm, I got me and my friends and we're running the organization and, you know, we do what we want. There's no real board of advisors, you know. Uh, so creating this level of accountability is very important um, within the community. Um, and so so these are all the things that we're dealing with because there's a vacuum. And so when, when there isn't real traditional learning happening and not just learning, but there's all these communities, these experiences uh, that you have, uh, it creates a really fragmented identity and it creates a very fragmented political discourse that's very intellectually dishonest. And I think that that's the, the you know, the kinds of questions that we're dealing with, the kinds of uh, frameworks that we're dealing with. I mean, it's just not authentic, in my opinion. It's not authentic to the reality of what this universe is about. And it's not even really what community is really dealing with. Um, and so we're, we're doing a lot of apologeticism. You know, Islam is this, Islam is that. And it's like theater. 
you know, it's like, in, it's like infotainment and then it doesn't work out. It doesn't fulfill you. It doesn't nourish you. And people are like, why am I still sick? Well, it's cause you're, you know, you're eating McDonald's every day. <laughs> what do you expect to be healthy? You know, it's not going to happen. So sure. So, so, so we need real, we need real nourishment. We need real good, uh, chefs that can produce uh, really good food, you know? Um, and look, it's, it's, it's good to be skeptical and say, well, this sounds like fantasy and myths and fairy tales, like you're idealizing history, but you no, know, these are experiences, you know, um, the, there's intellectual proofs for the Dean, there's cultural proofs for the Dean, and then there's just experiences like just the, there's the, and you ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to constantly show you a reality for, for what it is like, you know, and, and to, and to not let you be deluded. And you ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, at the end of the day, like the relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala defines a lot of the challenges that you're dealing with. And, you know, you can't save everything, but you can try to do your best. And be connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's messenger. It's how we evaluate everything, right? It's the universal rule for us. We want to evaluate leadership. This is how we do it. We look at what Allah's messenger said. We want to evaluate the world and geopolitics. This is how we do it. We want to evaluate business. This is how we do it. There's no division uh, between the deen and the dunya in that sense. Right. Like it's about intentions and, and your framework. And if you have the proper framework, everything, you know, becomes it becomes very palatable. So Khurum, that I think that's a good place to um let's not say stop but pause our conversation mm-hmm. um i'm cognizant it's been an, about an hour and a half and i want to respect your time um and thank you for uh, giving us all the thoughts so everything that you've stated um and referenced i'll do my best to to track it down uh link notes in the episode notes um but i might stumble on a couple of things so i might have to reach out to you i'll just sort of message you if, if that's okay with you to help me uh, track those things down um, sure. But I, d- I just wanted to ask if there's anything, I mean, we spoke about so many different things that they're not necessarily all related, but I wanted you to have the last word if there's anything that you wanted to say to conclude uh, this first, let's say, first conversation between the two of us that's recorded, uh, anything you'd like to end with, uh, advice, thoughts, recommendations, uh, last words. Yeah, I just, I wanted to, to thank you for having me. Um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, sort of things that I've kind of been pondering about and, you know, you're able to kind of, you know, ask questions and draw them out. And so thank you for having me sort of as a guest uh, on the podcast. Um, I hope I was able to, to benefit. Um, if I made any, said anything incorrect, I ask for forgiveness. If, uh, you know, uh, I hope I didn't say anything too controversial <laughs> or anything. No, this is, uh, you know, my podcast, my rules, man. You can say whatever you want. <laughs> And that's it. If people need uh, have questions, if you're an entrepreneur who's looking to get in and you want to like, you know, get a phone call or if you're in the DMV, we want to get a coffee um, or wherever the cool halal joint is in the DC area. I don't really, uh, I'm not sure if it's like halal guys or what, what are the youngsters, what are the cool hangout spots for people today, but we can grab a bite to eat and we can chat. Um, I'm here to serve in any way that I can. All right. Khurum, thank you very much. All right. Take care, Tarek. One more thing before you tune out. To help me stay focused and juggle the million things I'm doing, I put together a weekly email called Coexist Ruminations that highlights what I'm reading, working on, and thinking in four focus areas. Happiness, entrepreneurship, books, and Islam. If you'd like to receive these emails, which are 100% free, please go to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday to sign up. (laughs) 